Hello everybody, I'm Matt Wolford and this is Trium Connects. Coming up with ideas and taking action aren't mutually exclusive. In fact, we'd say action is the way to decide which idea is best. So far from positioning these two things as opposites, that we see them both as part of flow. People are hugely imbalanced right now. And the imbalance falls on the side of execute, do, go, break things and move fast. And the implied belief is the first ideas we have are the best ones. And so let's just move forward. And that's just not true. Which is the riskier path, <laughs> you know, experimenting and, and trying things out to figure out what's right in a small scale or going, you know what, it's way too risky to, to do something small. Let's make, let's put all of our effort into an enormous programmatic change and then cross our fingers and really hope it was the right decision. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 25 of Triumph Connects. I have had the privilege of designing and directing many executive education programs across many different industries over the last 25 years. One common theme in almost every program is a perceived need by the client to increase the amount and quality of innovation within their firms. And the argument goes something like this. You know, the world is uncertain and changing and our markets are being disrupted all the time. To survive and thrive in this kind of uncertain world, we need to be creative and innovate. But we're not very good at it. And they come to us and say, can you help us get better? Now, I think that the argument is probably about right. And apart from having a custom program, there are hundreds, if not thousands of books and multitudes of training courses out there which claim to be able to help people and firms to become more successful at innovation. It can be hard figuring out what is useful and what is evidence-based and what is just so much blah, blah, business speak. One of the best books I have read on the process of innovation has just come out. It's entitled Idea Flow, Why Creative Businesses Win by Jeremy Utley and Perry Claibon. Jeremy joins me in this episode of Triumph Connects to talk about their work. He and Perry both work, amongst other places, at Stanford's D-School which is one of the world's most famous centers for research and teaching of innovation. Perry is a co-founder and Jeremy is the director of executive education there. Jeremy is also the co-host of the D-School's famous course, Stanford's Masters of Creativity. The methods that Jeremy and Perry advocate draw on their ex impressive experience both at Stanford's D-School, but also in the business world. The core argument in the book is that we really shouldn't think of innovation as some sort of an event or a workshop or a sprint or a hackathon, but rather it is a more generalized capability that can be learned and has to be relevant for everyone. At its core, the principle is here that ideas matter, and you need ideas to solve problems in contrast to completing tasks. And every problem according to the book, is really an ideas problem. And I think this is probably true. Now, what they also go on to focus on is that instead of focusing on output, true innovators focus on input. So instead of obsessing over quality of ideas, innovators really should generate and focus on the quantity of ideas that they generate. The more ideas, 
the more assured you are to get quality at the end of the process. Now, in my opinion, what makes this book great and what I really enjoyed in my conversation with Jeremy is the concrete, actionable innovation practices described and the fact that they're backed up by solid research and evidence. I really hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. And now, without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Jeremy Utley. So, Jeremy Utley, welcome to Triumph Connects. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. You know, uh, congrats on your new book called Idea Flow. Uh, it's really interesting work and absolutely loaded with lots of great advice. I really recommend it to the listeners. Um, anybody interested in kind of not only the importance of innovation and creativity, but the process by which we can think about generating successful ideas and breakthrough ideas. Uh, I thought it was really, really good. Um, Thank you. No, it's it's definitely, you know, it's a culmination of teaching for the last 13 years at Stanford. So lots of failures, getting to interact with lots of amazing entrepreneurs and innovators, and really taking the pandemic as an opportunity to take stock of the things that we learned from working with some of these world-class leaders. We realized there's a book in there. There's actually probably more than one book in there, but this is at least volume one of the of, uh, kind of compilation of the first dozen years of learnings. Well, I look forward to, to to volume two. You know, it's interesting you say that because uh, I too, I've been teaching now 25 years, different senior executives, and I learned so much from them. It's, it's you know, one gets this feeling that, you know, the, somehow the instructor is imparting some sort of great knowledge to the audience, but it, the flow goes just as much back the other way, at, le at least as much. Absolutely. So listen, you start uh, you start the whole approach approach in the book, and I, I thought this was a really nice distinction. You you say every problem is an idea problem, and you make this great distinction between doing a task and a problem to solve. And I wonder if you could tell us why this distinction is important to you and how it ties to this idea of uh, idea flow. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. Uh, the reality is, problems are challenges for which you don't have a ready answer so it's the stuff that gives you a pit in your stomach it's the stuff that keeps you up at night it's the stuff that you find yourself kind of scratching your head spinning your wheels on tasks most of the time are straightforward it's just a matter of execution and you might feel a pit in your stomach because you got to finish that presentation but it's not really a problem necessarily a problem is something in search of a solution and what we know when we say every problem is an idea problem what we know is what problems yield to are lots of solutions, not just a solution, but lots of solutions. And so lots being the kind of operative word or the important word there. And so when we say every idea is an idea problem, what we mean is every problem is in need of lots of potential solutions. And when you realize, when you kind of reorient, because the natural tendency of a human being is to focus on looking for the answer. But very few of the problems we face in our lives have a single right answer. And so if you start thinking about the task in terms of generating lots of potential answers, you then you have different levers at your disposal. How could I come up with lots of different answers, right? I have different collaborators that I could draw upon. I have different sources of inspiration. I could be looking in different places. I could be talking to customers. But all of those tools can only be called upon when you can have that meta awareness. What I need is lots of ideas here. And so that's why we say every problem is an idea problem is it's trying to help people realize the first thing is more ideas and then we can move on to which ones are good, et cetera. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, again, I like the idea that a task might make you feel like, as you said, that feeling in the pit of your stomach, but it isn't it isn't something you have to wonder how you're going to do it, right? And one of the things that I thought was interesting is somewhere at some point in the book, you talk about um, how really problems, one, one thing is problem confronts you that you have to figure out, well, how am I going to solve this problem? Another thing is kind of this idea of things that annoy you. Mm. And so you make a kind of list of the things that annoy you. And the and these are the sources of of kind of targets for creativity and innovation. Is, did I get that right? Yeah, I mean, since the 1960s, there's a legendary professor named Bob McKim at Stanford, who is a progenitor of the design program. And what Bob McKim would often advise students is keep a bug list. Mind you, this is decades before software development was invented as a field. So he's not talking about errors in lines of code. He's talking about a list of things that bother you, a list of things that irritate you. And what students have found through the years is it's an incredibly rich source of raw material. You think about what an idea is, very simply. You know, if I ask a listener to define the word idea, it's kind of challenging to do. You go, oh, how would I, how would I tell a five-year-old what an idea is? And very simply stated, my understanding of the underlying neural research is an idea is a connection. It's a connection between two things I already know. And that's actually a very important distinction because an idea is not something from nothing. And we can think, oh, I've got to come up with a good idea. It's, and I start at nothing. That's not true. You actually have to start with component parts. And one of the fantastic component parts that innovators start with is problems to be solved, things that annoy them. You know, you look at one of my favorite examples is a woman named Bette Nesmith Graham, who was a secretary at Texas Bank and Trust in the mid-1950s. And the problem that annoyed her all the time was that her newfangled IBM typewriter kept smudging the page, you know, and the, the, the carbon filament would smudge the page. And so instead of taking notes most of the days, you know, most secretaries were want to do, she spent most of her days erasing smudges. And that bothered her, you know, many secretaries are bothered, but so you think about that as kind of one Lego in a idea connection between two Legos, right? The, but the thing that happened, which was really, you know, historical in her life um, and benefited us all, because she was a single mother, she had to work odd jobs and weekend took weekend gigs to kind of make ends meet. And one day she was painting a window display at a department store. And she's painting, you know, it's a sale kind of display. And she made a mistake and she, she took a straight edge razor. She starts kind of scraping the paint off the window and the painter came over and said, whoa, 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 what are you doing? And she said, oh, I'm just trying to get rid of this. You know, I'm erasing this mistake. And he said something that would change your life and it would change all of our lives. He said, Painters don't erase mistakes. Painters paint over their mistakes. And maybe to every other painter on the job, that was well-known, whatever, right? But for Bette Nesmith Graham, it was a new cognitive input that had relevance not just on her like side hustle, but you know what else she thought of? What about my smudges on my page? Yeah. And she, in collaboration with her son's high school chemistry teacher, went on to invent liquid paper, which... She ended up selling for, you know, in today's dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, right? To Gillette. But the point is, like, we hear stories like that. And we go, oh, that's, you know, we think it's kind of exceptional. In my kind of nerdy uh, obsession with this question of where breakthroughs come from over the last 12 years, I realized that's the rule. Ideas come from these component parts. 
and they get fitted together from new information with old information. And so if you think as a, you know, as an entrepreneur, as a manager, as an innovator, as a creative of any kind, part of your job is to be gathering Legos, so to speak. It's to be gathering these inputs, gathering quotes, gathering problems, keeping a bug list, as Bob McKim said, right? Because what you know is those are the seeds of the next breakthrough. And you can't, you may not be able to predict when the you know perfect connection is going to come, but you can have a mindset to look for connections. And that's something that Carl Dunker identified even in the 1940s, dramatically increases the likelihood of people seeing connections is they're actually looking for them, right? Yeah. And so this is kind of the mindset that we're trying to advocate. It's just be aware of the inputs and try to connect them in different ways. And if you get in the habit of doing that, like for a lot of organizations, innovation is an event. Right. It's like, we're going to have a workshop. That's where we innovate. We're going to do a sprint. That's where we innovate. And what we'd say is it has to become a capability that you're practicing, that you're attending to on a regular basis. And if you start attending to some of these simple activities, like, you know, looking for connections, all of a sudden innovation starts to become a more routine part of your life. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because one of the things that, um, one of the things I teach is, is the power of narrative and leadership. So it comes from, again, a cognitive psychology background. And what we know is that, you know, we look out at the world and see lots of facts, lots of observations. And the only thing that gives those observations meaning is how we put them together in our heads into a narrative. And, and it, and so that resonates with me when you say, you know, putting those component parts into a different combination, because that's what our brain's doing all the time anyway, but it kind of gets into a rut, our, our current existing st uh, stories in our head will push those fact combinations into a certain direction. Right. And we just right. kind of ignore all these other possibilities out there because that's the path of least resistance. And it, it, well, it's that's, a, the, that's the human tendency, right? Yeah. Is because like, we we have a this highly capable cognitive function, but always we're also lazy, and mm. we're always looking for the simplest definition. We're always looking for pattern matching, right? Yeah, it's called the Einstilling effect. It's the tendency to look for one solution and then stop looking. You know. And when you become aware, my my bias is to to gravitate towards the first thing I think of. Then, and and if you know, by the way, that a priori, the first thing you think of is no better than the tenth thing that you're going to think of, as long as you keep thinking, right? Then you stop you stop settling for the first idea that comes to mind. But it requires like an awareness of these, as you said. We refer to those as associative barriers. Hmm. You know, Steve Jobs talked about like the, the chemical etching. It's like people get stuck in a groove, like in an old vinyl record, right? Just get stuck and they keep thinking the same thoughts. It's because they don't recognize that's what's happening. Yeah. And so part of the book is about illuminating some of these biases to help give people simple, practical ways to jump out of the rut. Yeah, it's my colleague at uh, HEC, Olivier Siboni, one of the things that he proposes and that I teach in many of my sessions is once once you settle on some sort of strategic uh, direction in a firm or your team or whatever it might be, you know, he calls it vanishing options. So if you just say to the people, what if that option wasn't available to us? You know, what would be our next best idea? And then when what once you get finished with that, when you say, okay, what if that one wasn't available? What would be our next best idea? And the idea is that that forces you in this kind of a process, you know, a decision, you know, we, we talk about decision architecture. So that forces you to get out of those ruts. So as you know, we usually come up, as you said, a satisfying answer or something that 
is the first thing that looks like it's going to work. And then we spend the rest of our times looking for information that confirms that that's the, th that's the way to go. So unless, at least in my work, unless we force people out of that, 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 that kind of gravitational pull of that first idea is so strong. It's really hard to right. get out of. I love that. I think that's dead on. I'd never heard of vanishing options before, but I think it's a great way to force yourself. And we talk about every day, you know, that, that may be an exercise in strategy class. We call it a daily idea quota where every single day you take a problem that you're where, where you realize you're looking for, you know, quote unquote, the right answer. Yeah. And I use air quotes deliberately there because again, most problems don't have a single right answer. Yeah. Um, and just force yourself to flip orientation and set it and say, instead of looking for one answer, I'm just going to come up with 10, some bad, some good, some illegal, some ridiculous, right? It doesn't matter. But forcing yourself to orient around quantity rather than quality. I've, you know, I would say in the thousands of students who've done this, most people find that their best ideas are ideas number eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, but they would have settled on the first one if they hadn't been focused on quantity. Sure. And this is what I think, I mean, you use uh, the idea that, and in fact, it's kind of a core of your book. It seems like, you know, you want to increase the volume and the variability. So you want, you want, you know, if you think of a, 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 like a bell curve, you know, you want loads of frequencies so you can get a nice distribution of ideas. And then you mm. want to flatten that curve as much as possible. So you get these kind of variability of the options. And it's only through yeah. that, that you're going to get to those ideas. Because if you, if you come up with four or five ideas, as I understand your book, tell me if I'm getting it wrong. The probability that one of those ideas is going to be great is relatively low. If you come up with a thousand or two thousand, the probability is somewhere in there is a great idea. Then it's just a matter of how you how you kind of identify it within that within that distribution. Is that, does that did I get that right? I think it's beautiful. <clears throat> I think volume and variability is a great way to put it. It's um... When we, you know, take take the quote of uh, Steve Jobs, I was talking to my friend Greg McEwen, who wrote a great book called Essentialism. And we were talking about this notion of volume and variability. And he said, you know, Jeremy, I've always referenced Steve Jobs' quote. He said, innovation saying no to a thousand things. That's a that's a you know well-known quote. And Greg said, I always reference that quote as um, as support for my idea, which is essentialism, which is saying no to way more things. And I say, you know, I'm an essentialist, but look, Steve Jobs was an essentialist. He said, you got to say no to a thousand things too. But he said, what I never realized until we had this conversation is the first thing to Steve Jobs wasn't saying no. The first thing was having a thousand ideas to say no to. Right. Yeah. And and to me, you know, and then there's this great story. I don't know if you've seen it. Johnny Ive, Sir Johnny Ive, the legendary head of design at Apple at Steve Jobs Memorial. He opened the memorial. They would often eat lunch together. Almost every day they had lunch together. And what Johnny said was every day, Steve would say to me, hey, Johnny, want to hear a dopey idea? And he said many times they were truly dopey. In fact, often they were absolutely terrible, but sometimes they would take the air out of the room and we both sit there and wonder, you know, and to me, what that spoke of, when we think about Steve Jobs, we don't think about dopey. Mm. We think brilliant. We think disruption. We think redefining categories. We think delightful, but what Steve Jobs knew that so few of us know is if you want to get to delightful, you got to be dopey. 
And a lot of people don't get to, it speaks to your idea of variability. A lot of people never get to delightful because they won't allow themselves to be dopey. I mean, Johnny Ives, like the best designer in the world at the time. And Steve Jobs is willing to tell him what things that he thinks might be stupid. Is there someone in your life or in my life that, I, that I'm willing to tell stupid ideas to? No, no, we go, I only want to tell the good ideas. Yeah. You know, well, good luck getting a breakthrough. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you have to have that safety feeling of safety that the other person you know, is going to be honest with you to tell you that it's a dopey idea. That's right. Absolutely. So you, you write that creation is a process, not a product. We've been kind of talking about that. And one of the things I liked, it's a simple tool that you use and you recommend for your own kind of creativity, you, you suggest a kind of almost a daily practice. And you, I think you referenced it a little bit earlier where you can kind of measure your own individual idea flow. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about what that is and what you recommend? Very simple. Yeah. We call it the idea quota, the daily idea quota, where every day you write down a problem that you're trying to solve. How, like, um, how do I get employees to come to the all hands meeting? You know, it's not like what's a new product for my customers. You know, when people think about innovation only in terms of new product or new service, you're incredibly limited. I mean, certainly you can say like, how are we going to, what's the next version look like? Or how are we going to delight? How do we deal with, you know, um, re uh, retention rates? You know, you, can, you know, how do I open this presentation? How do I, what should the title of this email be? You know, it can be any problem that you're facing where your default bias is to have one idea. You go, oh, let's go with that. Great. You know, and then you go, typically go with that. We just say once a day as a manner of practice and also of impact, instead of coming up with one idea, push yourself to come up with 10. Vanishing options. What if I couldn't do that, right? What if I couldn't do that? And you push yourself to come up with 10, not only because you're going to find a better idea if you keep pushing. Um, and I'll, but I'll, so let me talk about that for a second. Then I want to talk about one other thing, which is this notion of practice. There is a widely held um, myth called the creative cliff. And what that belies is the tendency to assume one's creativity deteriorates over time. And there's a point at which it actually hits a cliff and it just falls off precipitously. That's not true. By age of the person or by the number of ideas they generate? No, if you think about, okay, given a problem, you know, time zero. Now I just gave you a problem. How are you going to publicize this podcast? Right. And you go, okay. And you start going and you're like, oh, we're going to post to LinkedIn and we're going to notify our followers, um, you know, via our Facebook group. And we're going to send an email. Well, your mind, and if, if I were to kind of survey you, you're, you would say my creativity is declining. And my ideas are going down and there's going to reach a point where my creativity runs out. I got you. And okay. the paper that examines this, it's actually called the creative cliff illusion because what the authors found is creativity doesn't decline over time. And in fact, it has the potential to increase over time, but there's one variable that affects whether you reach a cliff or a ramp. You know what it is? Uh, volume of ideas. It's your expectation of whether your ideas will improve or not. Uh, okay. Really? Okay. So the person who expects they're not going to have any more ideas doesn't. The person who expects they're going to have better ideas does. All their ideas are better, right? So the daily idea quota is it's part of it is reinforcing this notion of no, better ideas will come if you just give yourself like this isn't like an hours long activity. It's like five minutes, you know, but it really does help. But then the other side of it is 
separate to actually generating better ideas for a given problem is reinforcing a new cognitive reaction. Okay, well, before we before we go into that, because I want to clarify this little something, just to, just to, to make sure I get this right. So, if I when you were talking about the the creativity cliff, what I was thinking about is, and and I think I think in pictures. So, um, one idea of where my ideas come from is kind of like a tube of toothpaste, and I'm just going to squeeze it and squeeze it. And at the end, nothing else is going to come out, and I that's it. I've kind of that's my creativity done for this problem. And, and that's kind of like this idea of each one is going to maybe be a little bit less and maybe I'll get some at some point, but at the end, I'm going to, I'm going to run out. But I think what you're saying is to think of it as tapping some sort of resource like that is a completely wrong way of thinking it. That, that in fact, what happens, it's not, it's not a resource that can be depleted, but that every time you pull something out of the bag, in fact, more more balls come into the bag. I, I mixed my metaphors there, but does that does that make sense? That's a beautiful way of describing it. The, every time you pull, the more balls come. I think there's something to that. I, I haven't seen research exactly to that end, but I think that's a better way to think about it. If you think about it as, a, but I love that idea of a tube. If you see it as a finite thing that I'm just going to squeeze out, you know, to the last drop, and that's it. Yeah, you're toast. I mean. And part of the challenge of a daily idea quote is we do make it kind of a fixed amount of time or, you know, just you know 10 or whatever. But I think it's, it's just forcing yourself to go beyond what you'd ordinarily do. The truth is the most innovative, you know, there's a guy named Donald McKinnon who conducted this fascinating study of creativity. He was a World War II spy master who got interested in this idea of creative productivity. He studied a bunch of architects. He asked all living architects at the time to say who are the most eminent practitioners in the field. And he then he found a subset that, that everybody agreed were the greatest. And he chose architecture, by the way, because of its not only aesthetic sensibility, you do want beauty and aesthetics and things like that, but you also have seismic forces and gravity to contend with. So it's gotta be, you can't just be, you can't be frivolous, right? Um, in your in your creativity. And so anyway, he, he did a kind of an anthropological study of the most eminent practitioners in the field. And then he contrasted their daily habits with their less eminent counterparts. He found two key distinctions that we can focus on one for the time being. One, I'll just tell you, but it's like a whole other podcast. But one was they, the most eminent were way more likely to play than their counterparts. Hmm which as I said, is worth a whole other podcast. Yeah. Um, but the other that has bearing on our conversation now is the, the most eminent architects were way more likely to delay decisions than their mm -hmm. less eminent counterparts. And what McKinnon found as he studied that is when they delayed decisions, better options presented themselves, new inputs arrived, new information arrived, and it enabled them to arrive at better outcomes. And so the, you know, the ultimate goal, you know, of a daily idea quota is to condition oneself to expect better ideas will keep coming. And maybe even a better thing to do than an idea quota is to give it a day or to give it to, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright famously took two naps a day. The yeah. guy's very busy, but he valued the, you know, the subconscious process of incubation so much that he created space for it. Right. Yeah. And so that's, I love that notion of it's not a tube of toothpaste. I don't know what the, what the, um, 
you know, I almost picture like an ocean, you know, destroying a sandcastle, you know, and there's, there's, you're never exhausting the water supply there. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I mean, two things popped to my mind. One of the, one other thing, um, I can't remember the author right now. I, I have to look at, but um, if you look at the most successful scientists, so people who have won Nobel prizes, et cetera, et cetera, they're much more likely to have a serious hobby that has nothing to do with their area of study. So they play music or they love jazz or they there's something else in their life that takes them. And I think it's probably back to our original idea that you were talking about is making these different connections. Yes. Well, that's, you know, Arthur Kessler, he wrote this great book. If you ever, you know, find yourself laid up in the hospital for weeks, so you should read it. It's called The Act of Creation. It's a spectacular book. It's like seven, eight hundred pages long. Um, but what Kessler said is effectively, he said he defined creativity as the collision of apparently unrelated frames of reference. Yeah. And, and what you do with a hobby like these Nobel Prize winning scientists that you mentioned is you're, you're exposing yourself to other frames of reference, yeah. other ways of approaching a problem, other exactly. ways of you know, solving something. And you increase the likelihood that you will arrive at a collision yourself. Yeah. And the other thing that, I mean, the other thing that sparked me when we were talking about, you were saying about the architects. Um, one of the things that I teach is decision-making and, um, you know, the process of decision-making, et cetera. And one of the things that I find when I talk to practitioners who are making, you know, hugely consequential choices, they often say, you know, Matt, look, I understand the process, I go through it, but for me, it's not necessarily how do I make the decision, it's when do I make the decision, right? At what point do I have enough information? At what point do I do I say that's enough? So your your suggestion, I love it, that you you keep pushing, you keep pushing for that other idea, each idea might be better, you sleep on it for a day or two, kind of at what point? Do you say, okay, I've got all the Lego blocks. I, 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 is that completely kind of externally defined or do you kind of have a idea of what optimally, at what point should I switch to trying to come up with different solutions to focusing down? Well, yeah, the reality is none of us exist in this world where we can just keep coming up with ideas and ideas and ideas. Ultimately, you do need to implement. I think the the important thing is to make the simple realization that the first idea isn't the best and the second idea isn't the best. So giving yourself permission and giving yourself space to generate more than you think you need and, and increase your likelihood of discovering something better. I think it's right now on the spec, like I would say, generally speaking on the spectrum from affording a problem far too little ideation and affording it far too much, I agree there should be a balance. Right now, the balance is hugely in the favor of far too little ideation. And what I'm advocating, you know, people get to the point that they feel like they are so far in la-la land, you know, in terms of ideation, then, you know, we'll write a second book about like, you know, you know, uh, break through your idea dam, you know, or whatever, right? But I think right now, the, the notion of balance is an important one people are hugely imbalanced right now. Hmm. And the imbalance falls on the side of execute, do, go, break things and move fast, you know, kind of a mentality. And the implied belief is the first ideas we have are the best ones. 
And so let's just move forward. And that's just not true. Yeah. And a huge bias towards action. Do something. We need to do something. We can't hear. We can't just, just keep, keep thinking about it. Well, and, you know, I mean, I, one thing I would say, you know, because I wear a bunch of different hats at the D-School, but, you know, working with entrepreneurs, they do have a bias towards action, an incredible bias towards action, and that's great, and you don't want to stop it. We believe that experimentation is probably the single greatest differentiating ability for an entrepreneur. So experiment, by all means experiment. We uh, Coming up with ideas and taking action aren't mutually exclusive. In fact, we'd say action is the way to decide which idea is best, right? Yeah. So far from, far from, you know, kind of positioning these two things as opposites, that we see them both as part of flow. Like you need to be generating ideas and you need to be executing experiments. And by the way, if you take as a premise as an entrepreneur, which is a really invigorating and unexpected premise to a lot of entrepreneurs, I need to get good at experimenting. Like if you really take that as a premise seriously, then you do it for two or three or four days before you had this realization I need a lot more ideas. Like if I'm going to experiment, I need way more ideas, right? So it's not that action is um, opposed to ideation. In fact, action, if you're really action oriented, then what you realize is you need way more ideas than when you weren't action oriented, right? No, absolutely. So I guess what I was thinking about is we have this bias sometimes. Let me Let me say bias not towards the action of experimentation, but choice and implementation. Yes, 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 yes. And that's, you know, action, what we should be, is, as I understand it, and I agree with the book, is what we should be looking at is action, yes, but quick actions to test the assumptions behind our idea. Yes, and then, and cheap, then all, scrappy, fast. That's right, lots of them. So yes. let me, we're, we're going to get to that because I think the kind of, how you go through that process is super important, but I just have one more thing about the generation process. And this, this struck me, you know, maybe this is just me, but you say, uh, if you don't capture something, it didn't happen. And I can't tell you how many ideas I've had, you know, and I thought, oh, well, I, I really have to come back to that or I have to, maybe it's, I'm just getting old, but you know, I, I just forget, forget them. No, it's the worst feeling in the world. <laughs> you have this uh, idea that we should, we need to kind of physically keep them. So we kind of need a notebook with us all the time, kind of, and, and to write down any idea that comes in our head, you know, because that's that's the that's the kind of raw resources. Can you Absolutely. tell us approximately, you know, and then and then you go through a system where, you know, it has to be kind of synthesized, you know, you you should at some point, because otherwise the search through these disparate ideas is going to be super hard. So you need some sort of synthes synthesizing kind of action. Yeah, yeah, and that should happen about every week, you say. But approximately, right. how long, in your ideal state, right? In your ideal uh, kind of, you're 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 giving us the strongest prescription you can. Let's say somebody's in a managerial position. Yes. How long over a course of a month should they spend writing down their ideas, synthesizing their ideas, keeping their notebook? And the reason I ask you this is the following: I work with yeah. a lot of executives, and what they say is. I don't have any time. Yeah. I have so much to do. I, I have, and and it's funny because you listen to their language. They say, I have so many tasks to do, not problems. I have just so many tasks to do. I don't have time for this. And then I read your book and I thought, this is really good. I, I you know, and I, I, I pictured myself pitching the, your ideas to my executives. And what I heard back is, I don't have time for this. So how much time are we talking? It's actually, I would, I think it's the wrong, uh, respectfully, I think it's the wrong question. Okay. 
I think it's not a matter of time. I think it's a matter of discipline. Okay, cool. And what I, what I'm not saying is, hey, spend an hour every day, you know, in your dream notebook, you know, um, as you know, in your spiral, you know, and, and like draw pictures of unicorns, right? What I'm saying is, keep a notebook with you, and as ideas come, have the discipline to write them down. Yeah, it's and you know, I mean, my mentor David Kelly is a founder of IDEO, founder of the Stanford D School. He was good friends with the late comedian Robin Williams. And he said, Robin, everywhere they went, he had his yellow legal pad. And he's always writing down ideas, snatches a conversation. And he said, we'd be on a boat. You know, we'd be on the ferry going between places. And he's writing stuff down. And he says, lo and behold, at the show that night, I'm hearing about our conversation in his jokes. But he said, you wonder, like, where do people get, like, people who know they traffic in ideas, value them and capture them. Then we have this delusion as managers, whatever, that like ideas aren't my business. It's like solutions aren't your business. Yeah. Yeah, they are, right? But we 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 just we we don't value them enough, right? If you look at, I mean, Victor Hugo's son said the same thing, author of Les Miserables and you know, many amazing classics. He said, you couldn't be at dinner with dad without him taking out his notebook and writing something down. Said everything ends up in print. Right. But people who value ideas, it's like they say, like to a writer, everything's grist for the mill. Why isn't that true for a manager? To a manager, everything's grist for the mill. Why aren't managers taking down inspirational quotes and problems that they identify in their life and things that they hear from the field? uh, It's not a matter of time. It's a matter of attention. Right. And the simple habit of just holding a notebook, putting a thin notebook in your That's what I do. I put a thin notebook in my back pocket. You know, and then I write stuff down. My friend John Acuff, he's a you know multi New York Times bestselling author. I was it's funny I've had four inter, you know at least four interactions with him this year. Never specifically talking about his creative process, but at different points in the conversation, like he'll say, in my first conversation, he's like, "Oh, idea four hundred and thirty-one," and I said, "What?" He said, "Oh, I keep track of ideas in my notebook, and that's the four hundred thirty-first idea I've had this year." You know, well, fast forward by the way to. Um, three or four months later, I was on the phone with him for something else. In the middle of the conversation, he goes, oh, 1117. And I go, what? He goes, that's idea. That's, I'm, I just wrote that down. It's 11. And I realized, and he said, I'm a nerd. You know, I take it. He's like, my daughters have a water polo game. I take my notebook. He's, but the point is he values ideas. And we can, we can um, demonstrate value of ideas simply by writing them down. And your point about reviewing, it's not hard to just flip through a notebook and, and just read through stuff. And, and the thing that's amazing is, if, again, if you think about Kessler's definition of creativity, the collision of unrelated frames of reference. I write down an idea in May. If I read it now, I have tons of different problems that that idea may be relevant to, Right. I have tons of different relationships. I have tons of different projects, right? And so the the idea may be the same, but you know what's different? My brain, my context, right? And I can collide my own brain with my own ideas and result in different solutions, right? And so, you know, one of the things that I've been um, amazed to do is even, you know, like I read about uh, B.F. Skinner. He's a founder of behavioral psychology, Harvard psychologist. He valued... Uh, the kind of midnight hour so much that he set an alarm at midnight and at 1 a.m. every night because for an hour he would wake up with a clipboard and a pin flashlight and write down ideas and then he'd go back to bed, okay? 
And I was inspired by that. I didn't, I'm, I'm not hardcore enough to, you know, set an alarm that just feels like overkill to me. Um, but you know, I'm not BF Skinner. So what can you do? But I keep a notebook by my bed. You can actually see it right there in the corner. Yeah. Keep a notebook by my bed. And whenever I have an idea, I'm just committed to, uh, at the very least, I'm just going to be disciplined enough to write it down. That's the very simplest thing I can do. No kidding, Matt. The other night, I am falling asleep. There's this kind of wicked challenge I've been dealing with in my world. And a great idea came to my mind. And my first thought was, I do not want to write this down. I'm like almost asleep. I'll re- surely I'll remember it. I was, you know, kind of chanting it to myself to try to remind myself, you know. But then I thought, I don't want to be a hypocrite. You know, I can have this like general rule of, you know, rule against hypocrisy. Like I can't tell people to do something that I don't do. You know? So doesn't matter if I've seen that it re- works in the research, unless I do it, I won't say it. So I was like, man, I really do like this idea of writing down ideas. I got to do it. So I rolled over, disrupting my sleep, waking up my wife. And I wrote down this idea. Well, fast forward, you know, six hours to waking up in the morning. What do you know? My first thought is the idea. And I'm like, I knew I would remember it. This is so worthless. What a waste. I can't believe I disrupted my sleep. And I turned to my notebook. The idea that I woke up with was a totally different idea. Right. Now I have two amazing solutions to my problem, right? And if you had asked, if I would have sworn I woke up remembering the idea I had that night, but I didn't, it was a totally new idea, right? And so anyway, all that say, it's just the simple discipline of writing ideas down. Yeah. To me, it's not about how much time are you carving out? It's do you afford ideas care? You know, like, like going back to that Johnny Ive uh, memorial, he said, Steve Jobs afforded ideas a care that I've rarely seen. He knew that you could snuff them. So we, we can snuff ideas just by forgetting them, as you said. Yeah, yeah. We don't even have to be critical. We just have to, be, we just have to not be careful. And the least we can do, if we, if we realize that we're trafficking in ideas, as, and by the way, as, prof- as white-collar workers, we all are all the time, I'd much rather have someone rob my wallet than my notebook. Right. You know, I can replace a credit card. <laughs> that's easy. Yeah, yeah. But my ideas, like, what do I do, right? And so for me, that's, it's, a simple, it's a simple prioritization that really we're after. Okay. So kind of a way of thinking about it is by taking care of those ideas, by capturing them, by doing the exercise in the morning about measure, you know, your, your, your daily exercise, you know, 10, 10, 10 problems, so, solutions to problems. This is a way of increasing the volume increasing, you know, capturing the ideas. And, and then we kind of turn to the second half of the book and the second half of the process, kind of how do we, how do we get from this raw material that some are crazy, some are great, some are, you know, we have to work through them. And you, you, you put forward this kind of ideas ratio. So the idea is you need kind of roughly 2000 ideas to get 100 prototypes, to get five commercial products, to get one success. So it's kind of this idea of 2000 ideas converts to, to one success. If, if I understood the right. ratio, right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So here's my, here's my question for you. I, I get the idea of hundred prototypes and then we test a lot of them and we fail fast and the failure is a good sign because if we don't ever fail, we aren't taking sufficient risks, things like this. And you you give a story about Thomas Edison tinkering around with all the different light bulbs, and I love that story because it's so it's so vivid in your mind. You know, a guy I have him in my mind as kind of an old guy with a big beard, and he's like 
throwing light bulbs away and you know this doesn't work and whatever. But then I took a step back and, and I want you to help me with this because I thought, you know, it might work like on something like a light bulb or a product or maybe I'm on an online thing. I'm trying to design a web page or a, an app or something like this. But what if by the nature of my business, it's really expensive to test, even, even at a small level, even, even, I mean, even if I try to go down to the lowest level, it's still really expensive. And maybe a failure represents a kind of existential risk. So let me, let me give you an idea. So I, I work a lot with this Trium executive MBA program, et cetera, et cetera. And we're in the process of thinking through kind of what's Trium going to look like in the future. Right. We need, you know, we've been around a long time. We've been super successful, but we're trying to think about let's innovate now when things are good rather than when things are going bad. And then so we can come up, we, we come up with lots of different ideas, what we could do, change the program. Some of them are crazy, some are loony. And I love the idea that we're getting lots of ideas. But the idea of of kind of like trialing one of those ideas becomes so it's it's so risky. Because you can your 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 competitive positioning can fall so fast if things go wrong. I just wondered, let me try to put it another way. I, I heard you, I, I watched you online once and, and I love this line, you don't want to see post-it notes in a cockpit window. So the, I, 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 I like that very much. So more my, I guess my general question, a long way to get to it, so I apologize. But are there characteristics of problems which are appropriate for this kind of process and with lots of ideas trying to win them down and then other types of problems that aren't so appropriate do you think that there is any limitations to the to the method well i mean i would i would just approach the question from the let's say it's too risky to try experimenting okay or it's you know whatever so then what's the alternative you know take the program it's a great example so the alternative is we're going to we're basically going to put it all on red. We're going to make a change with no information whatsoever. Like, which is the riskier path? <laughs> you know, experimenting and, and trying things out to figure out what's right in a small scale or going, you know what? It's way too risky to, to do something small. Let's make, let's put all of our effort into an enormous programmatic change and then cross our fingers and really hope it was the right decision. Right. To me, to me, the latter is like obviously way more risky. Right. Yeah. So you go, okay. Like you, you, I, I disagree with the premise that experiments have to be expensive or, or that they have to be risky. If they are expensive, then you probably have to rethink the experiment. And so the question becomes, how do I test some of the fundamental assumptions in a way that's lightweight, in a way that's effective, in a way that, right. For example, in the context of your existing program, why not try different programmatic offerings among current students? They're already in on the present value proposition, right? Mm. They're already getting the status quo experience. Can you radically improve their experience by offering something? You're because you're, you're probably not going to dip below the status quo. You're probably not. There's nothing you're going to do that's going to overall detract if the if the frame is set. We're seeking to figure out how to make our experience even better. We yeah. value your feedback, yeah. right? You know, uh, so the the I would say the cost is relatively low, but the benefit is very high, right? But you just you got to think. I mean, the bias towards every individual is to think, and this is we you aren't unique. I think it myself. 
but it's to think there's this particular case where it's really difficult to experiment uh, in a in a scrappy and cheap manner, and usually involving folks from the outside is a great way to help because those are our associative barriers speaking, right? Those are our chains of association because this program is so big, because it's so reputable, like therefore, right? But there are really simple ways to do really small things that have a big difference. I'll never forget, you know, uh, Hyatt hotels, they've got 600 hotels around the world and, or, you know, more now, probably a lot more actually, but at the time I was working with them, they did. And they wanted to reinvent the check-in experience. Well, they took one hotel and they started kind of monkeying with it and tinkering with it. And then they did it in a couple of hotels. Yeah. But what was amazing was they brought in Ikea furniture. They brought in whiteboards, you know, or ordinarily the kind of brand standards are Herman Miller is like the worst you can do, right? So get a super nice furniture. And then they realized they couldn't experiment with super nice, super expensive furniture. They had to be able to just slap something together, you know, and there's an Ikea down the street from the hotel, right? So they would rapidly prototype. They put up signs saying experimentation and progress, right? There, during the period of time they were trying to figure out what the answer is, their net promoter score went from 37 at this location to 73. And they hadn't implemented the answer. They were only clear that they were trying stuff, right? It's a great example of it's, you know, they, they dramatically altered a customer perception by trying to do something different. Yeah. Right? And, I mean, that's a great example. I'm just going to push back gently a little bit because I, 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 I just, because if you have 600 outlets, I can see, you know, picking one out and you're going to do a little, you're going to do different things there. And I can see how, if I'm a customer and I think, wow, you guys are really trying to improve. I like that. Even if I don't like this idea, I'll give you the credit for trying to, and that's sure. that one place. But let's say, for example, let's say I'm a manufacturer of heavy trucks, right? I make I make big, huge trucks to, to move very large amounts of stuff around. And one idea I have is, look, I want to make electric vehicles, but none of the people who buy my trucks want to buy electric vehicles. So I, I want I want to clean up my you know business. I, I want to be I want to help with the transition to clean technology. But nobody wants to buy my trucks. If I if I if I go to my people who buy my trucks, they say I'm not interested for a lot of different reasons, too risky, etc. So I get this idea. I say I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to my client's client. So I'm not going to go to the haulier. I'm not going to go to the person who is buying the trucks. I'm going to go to the person who buys the transport solution, and mm. I'm going to say to them, "Look, you force your guys." to buy electric trucks and you can clean up your carbon footprint along your whole supply chain. Mm. So I'm trying to get my, the, my clients, clients to pressure them to do something I want them to do. That's my idea, let's say. Now, now I just want, how would I, and you say about scrappy test, you can, how would I go about doing this can help me? Cause I, I, I just, I've been thinking about this. How would I test that in a kind of scrappy well, way? Well, I mean, so there, I mean, the Hyatt example, they had one of 600 hotels they were working with, right? Well, if you're a heavy truck manufacturer, you may not have, you probably have a lot more than 600 buyers, you know, yeah. thousands of buyers. True. Right? So if you, and if your hypothesis is, if I, you know, go downstream from my buyer, you know, setting aside whether I like the idea or not, which doesn't matter, by the way, but say I want to, I want to, you know, um, 
break the chain of command. I want to go downstream from them. Well, let's try that with one. Right, we we can isolate our risk. Right, we're not we're not launching a vendetta against all of the buyers and going direct to their you know people who are going to put pressure on them. Let's try it with one. Let's see what happens. How does a particularly motivated you know customer of the customer have an impact on our customers' decisions? Do they do what we say? Like, and what is what is that conversation even like? You know, forget how does it impact our customers' behavior. How does the customer's customer react to our interacting with them? And what are what are their motivations and what do they want to get out of the relationship? But there are these, there are these enormous, I mean, I've actually worked with heavy truck manufacturers, and I would say, you know, I'll never forget, there's this, you know, one um salesperson who'd been there 20 plus years. You know, he's got tons of experience, tons of credibility, and he's got the idea of kind of a 24-hour roadside assistance product for um diagnostics and trucks. And we asked him to put together a budget for, hey, what are you going to propose to run an experiment? You know, and your question is, how do you run cheap experiments? He said, well, I need $30 million. And I said, whoa, that's a lot of money, $30 million. And he said, well, no, I mean, I know the CEO, I can get it. And I said, no, that's actually what I'm worried about, that you are so compelling, you probably could get it. But how many $30 million experiments can an organization run? It's not very many, right? Yeah. So I pushed him, I said, I want you to think about making it an order of magnitude more affordable. What would you do? Similar to your question of um, this option's not available to us. What, what do we do? So he went back, kind of ran some numbers. And he basically said, okay, bare minimum, like if I want a minimum viable product, I just need to hire like three you know, call center folks, call it 70K a year. I need $300,000 to get off the ground, right? So, and so what do you do? He actually went two orders of magnitude cheaper, which was amazing, right? Just the push. Yeah. And I said, wait, why, why are you hiring people for annual salaries? He said, well, that's what we always do. I said, well, is that what you have to do? Is, like, are you confident to hire an annual salary right now, let alone three? He said, no. And he said, but how am I going to get a call center? And I said, I'll, I'll change his name. I said, Brad, you're the call center. And he goes, what? I said, do you know any drivers? I said, oh yeah, I know hundreds of them. I said, have them change your name in their contacts to customer support, right? And then tell them, if you ever experience a breakdown, call and I'll get you what you need, right? And he goes, well, what about when I have to sleep? I said, well, at Stanford, we tell students to answer the calls in the middle of the night, of course. But if you're, you know, you've got kids and you're all, you know, you're super experienced, what does it take to have an outsourced, you know, call center for eight hours during the night. And he said, oh, I've got a, I actually got a dev, dev shop in India. They'll cover me for 15K for the next month. I said, okay. So we went from $30 million is what you think you need yeah. to 300,000, which is 1% of the original ask, right? Yeah. To 15K for a month long, you know, prototype. The point is, it's just, if you just push your thinking, you go, actually, yeah, we could do that. Well, oh, I want to think about it that way. And so the point is, Having some thought partners who value rapid experimentation, who can test what are we actually trying to test here? And then how do we do that as quickly as possible? For sure, we got to figure out how do we scale up a sales operation. For sure, we got to scale up and figure out how we solve every issue. But the first thing is, like in this case, does any truck driver actually call? Yeah. No, sure. And and I think, I mean, for what it's worth, I I, I 
I agree with you almost wholly. I think that strategy formulation is harder to experiment with than strategy implementation. And I think B2C is generally easier to experiment with than B2B just because of the small yeah. numbers. Yeah. Uh, but but the 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 overall message completely agree with way too much money is wasted on elaborate, meaningless pilots. And and you just and it's and what's surprising to me, I'm sure Jeremy, to you as well, is just basic knowledge about experimental design, about the ideas you're, that you're trying to eliminate as many alternative hypotheses as possible when you run your pilot. That itself, if you could just show people that, it must be it, it could save. You you put in the idea that you have to experiment, and then you say, but you just you have to think about how you're going to experiment. Yes, yes. And so you get a you don't get meaningless data out of it. You get data that's actually useful. Those two steps could save huge amount of money. No, and I mean what well, you have to again going back to this notion of cognitive bias, we all have a bias to 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 hear that we have a good idea. So is my idea good? I believe yes. And when I go in the marketplace, what do I how do I design my tests for people to tell me I have a good idea. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's hugely dangerous, right? Yes. So if you become aware of that bias, you start to say, well, how do I test my idea if I need to learn whether it's bad? Yeah. How do I, and, and could I flip my assumption and say, I shouldn't do this idea. This isn't a terrible idea, you know? And there's, there's really simple things you can do. We call it the default dead mentality. The starting point is we shouldn't do this. Can we prove ourselves wrong? Mm. Rather than the starting point is, we should do this. Can we prove ourselves right? And there's this notion in the world right now around big data. You know, everybody wants big data. I'm a huge advocate. We, Perry and I, are huge advocates of little data. Meaning big data, it's not a question of what the quantity of your data is. It's a question of the quality of your sure. data. And what entrepreneurs do well is they create proprietary, highly credible data sets. They're small data sets, but they're highly credible. You know, I've been the, you know, management consultant whose job is to survey customers, not, not to throw shade, but I know, you know, excuse me, mister, can you tell me what you think of our, you know, end cap here? Yeah. What's yeah. he going to say? Good job, buddy. And I go, oh, great. I tell my boss, somebody liked it. Uh, excuse me, ma'am. Do you like this end cap here in the grocery store? Oh yeah. It looks beautiful. Right. So, and I, I talked to 10,000 people and I come and tell my boss. 9,000 of the 10,000 people I talked to loved my display, right? That's, and that we, we tend to be swayed by that. The problem is you got a puppy dog eyed intern asking people if they like his, you know, drawing, you know, it's like, and so it's big data, but it's not good data. And the challenge is how do you design an experiment that gives you good data, whether it's, even if it's small. Exactly right. Exactly right. And, and the design of the experiment, you know, I would just, I mean, same sort of thing that you were saying, you design it. What would the world look like if I was wrong? Yes. Instead of what would the world look like if I was right? Yes. And, and that, and that subtle difference can make a, could save you a lot of headache. That's right. So it's interesting. So one of the, one of the barriers to this kind of approach is, um, some of the things we've talked about, the myth of the of the idea cliff or creativity cliff, the 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 myth that it takes so much time, et cetera, et cetera. But one thing that often happens is, and and you write, I, I like this, you and your co-author write that the usual interventions in a crisis 
means more ambitious targets, shorter timeframes, rounds of layoffs. And these have the most chilling effects on creativity. In their scramble for security, leaders often inspire the very fear that kills innovation. So my, que my question was, is do you think there's an ever an appropriate time to perform kind of heroic life-saving procedures to save a firm and just ignore the innovation engine in the short term? Yeah, I mean, there are certainly measures that organizations have to take, right? To, you know, even reductions in force and things like that, um, you know, to ensure the survival of the organization. But you're never, there's never a point at which you reduce costs enough that you ensure long-term survival, right? Yes. Like, so no matter how low your costs are, if your cash flow is negative, you're out of business, even with very low costs, right? So to us, as we say in the book, ideas are the fountain of youth. Ideas are the future. And while you're in the midst of cost-saving measures, if you're not simultaneously attending to the future, you're in trouble. You're in dire straits. Absolutely. So a couple a couple quick things and then and then we'll get you out of here. So so I love your metaphor of flow and stagnation in ideas. And mm -hmm. the idea that for many people, innovation or ideation is about picking the right idea and kind of picking the right idea from a list rather than having lots of experiments. We've talked about that. But you say you you again, this this metaphor of flow is really nice because if there's no outlet for ideas, then they just die. And yes. I've worked I've worked with lots of companies who said we need innovation and we do a workshop on innovation and they come up with ideas, lots of interesting ideas. And then the innovations go and die a slow or fast bureaucratic death through kind of mm. strangulation because you know nobody owns them. There's no there's no uh, kind of uh, budget attached to it, and all that ever survives often is the kind of safe and sterile choices. Mm. It's a big question, but if you're a leader and you and you kind of buy this idea, you think that we need to have loads of innovations, we need lots of cheap, fast tests, and, and then go from there. How can you make sure that this flow is maintained? Because so many companies I work with, it's not that they can't generate the ideas, the ideas just tend to die. Yeah, couple couple of thoughts immediately come to mind. One is around ownership. You know, who is the owner of this idea? because they're the person who's going to drive the ball forward. So you look at what Amazon's done with a single threaded leader, right? And having clear ownership is critical. Now, a lot of times what that means is you got to pull something off somebody's plate. If they're going yeah. to attempt an experiment in some new direction, the question is, what are they going to stop doing, right? So there has to be kind of bandwidth or slack in the system to allow for that, which Amazon's done a really good job at. Um, the other thing I would say is, as a leader, a really simple question you could ask, I learned this from Astro Teller, who's the head of Google X, the moonshot factory at Google. He said, anytime somebody comes to me with an idea, I say, I want to see five. And what, what that does is it forces teams to constantly be thinking of alternatives. And he said, what's amazing is some teams at X can kind of say, um, they can kind of try to game the system. They bring some dummy ideas, you know, because they know Astro wants to see five. Yeah. It's like the one idea they actually like and then four others. And he said, what's funny is many times the dummy ideas are better than the idea they thought they wanted to show me, you know. <laughs> but, you know, Bob McKim had that same habit at Stanford. Anytime a student asked for feedback, he'd say, show me three. Yeah. 
And just, just, and that's a really simple tool that as a leader you can employ because idea flows, it's, it's contingent upon volume. It's contingent upon experiments. And what happens when you make a statement like show me three or show me five is it reminds people the need for alternatives. And then inevitably the question is, well, what's the proof we should do that one? Yeah. Which begets, which begets experiments, right? And the next step, maybe after you've done that a while, I, I like this question, um, you look at somebody and say, well, what do you think I'm thinking now? Mm. <laughs> and if you've, if your people are right, you're thinking, have I thought of other alternatives? Bingo. You know, what are the alternatives have you checked on? And so you start to get, you try to get them to think like you, you know what? And if, if somebody comes and says, I'm, I, I, I think you're thinking about how much it's going to cost. And then you know that they aren't thinking about the right problem. Right. So it's kind of like That's opening right. up a window into their mind. Do they, do they understand what your concerns are? Your values, your, your priorities. Yeah, that's right. That's great. I love that. So that's a, that's a nice one. Okay. One last thing. Homogeneous teams are efficient uh, at doing tasks, but I think you, you think they're pretty horrible at solving problems. So uh, can you tell me what, what right sort of diversity do you need in creative teams? Because you don't want just people who don't, understand the problem or, or, or maybe you do, what, how do you think of diversity in creative teams? The truth is that homogenous teams do move faster on known tasks. The challenge is they perform not nearly as well on creative problem solving and divergent tasks and where the problem's not clear, the solution's unknown. And so you have to know which state are we in? Are we in a state where we need to be moving for speed, you know, or are we in a state where we need to be generating options and, and recognize when, which modality is appropriate. Um, the kinds of diversity you want on the team is really cognitive diversity. What are, what are diverse perspectives on this challenge? And one of the things that we highlight in the book is the value of a novice perspective. Someone who, and they can be either new, they could be young, or they could be unfamiliar just from a different field. But there's tons of amazing you know, research and stories about how novices see opportunities where experienced folks don't. Increasingly, experience is a liability because of these cognitive barriers. And as the world's changing, knowing what worked in the past is less relevant to what's going to work in the future. You know, famous example, one of my favorite examples is from Lockheed Martin when they were trying to design in the Cold War era uh, a aircraft with a much lower radar signature than the existing aircraft. They we're stuck. You know, they, they designed roughly the same kind of aircraft with roughly the same kind of radar signature. And there's this young guy, uh, Dennis Overhauser was his name, who found this obscure Russian paper. He's a young guy with time to read obscure Russian papers. The paper had been published 10 years earlier and nobody in Russia paid attention to it. And he started reading it and he really felt the formulas that it laid out would give a pattern for a new aircraft design. And when he debuted the design, it took you know six months for the computer to actually crunch all the numbers. But when he debuted the design of what would become the stealth bomber, which by the way, had one one thousandth of a radar signature of anything anyone else had ever designed, the head of aeronautics at Lockheed said, this kid should be burned at the stake. This is heretical. That thing they called, you know what they called it? They called it the hopeless diamond because they had no hope of the thing flying, right? It's unstable on X, Y, and Z axis, right? But what had changed? Computerized stabilization had changed. 
And so the rules for what constitutes aerodynamic had changed. And all the keepers of conventional wisdom couldn't fathom a new paradigm. And when you think about a new problem and a new paradigm, someone who's not institutionalized is an incredibly valuable resource. They're maddening to the team. They say things that are seemingly heretical and every once in a while they're right. And a team that knows they need a breakthrough, you know, um, my friend Bo Lotto is a famous neuroscience uh, professor. He's written a great book called Deviate. Um, Bo says the, the value in an, an expert and a novice coming together is the following. An expert knows a great problem, but can't ask a great question. A novice asks great questions, but has no idea which is a great problem, right? So you put them together and the novice, if they have the freedom and permission to ask great questions, every once in a while, the expert goes, that's a great question, right? And so it's actually that pairing that's really powerful. So I would say, I would say making sure on your team, and there's loads of other examples in the book, but making sure on your team, there's space and psychological safety for people to say silly, dopey ideas and to ask silly, dopey questions yeah. is really critical. Yeah. Well, Jeremy, I could, this is great. I could have gone on for hours and hours, but I know you're very busy. Um, and uh, for those of you listening, what I, what I really like about the idea flow book is that I, I, as a teacher, I look for these kind of books because they have so many practical things that you can actually implement. They are, it's a fantastic kind of mix of theory and practice that, that I really want to congratulate you on, because I think a lot of people, if the, if you pick up the book and, and actually apply just a few of the things in there, it's going to make a difference. So, so uh, well done on that. Um, I'm super appreciative. You know, one thing that if listeners are curious, one, one of the things that we had to cut was our references to Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos, because we had so many. And so we put a free chapter on our website. If folks want to check it out, you can just go and download it. It's called How to, How to Think Like Bezos and Jobs. Because our, edit, our editor goes, okay, guys, you have too many references to Steve Jobs here. So we, we uh, But there's so many, I mean, there, you talk about two world-class breakthrough thinkers of our time. And there are a bunch of things they had in common. So we actually, um, in an effort to kind of trim the book of references to those two alone, we ended up putting a lot of really interesting stuff in a bonus chapter. If you just go to ideaflow.design, you can pull it down there. But it's a fun, um, it's a fun way to see how breakthrough thinkers think. You know, and there are there are simple things that we, as you said, we can all start doing today to dramatically improve the results and outcomes of our problem solving. And anybody can do it. So last last question. Uh, what's a book or a film or a play or a poem or a TV show, whatever? that's had a great impact on the way you think of creativity and innovation. It can be fiction, nonfiction, anything that what, what's, what's really uh, struck you, influenced you. You know, uh, one book I really like is Mark Randolph's book about the founding of Netflix called that will never work. And uh, it's just filled with great lessons for entrepreneurs about creative problem solving around challenging paradigms around experience. I mean, it's, it's a great book on experimentation. If you want to, dig into experimentation as a topic, that book will show you tons of clever ways to do it. Thank you very much, Jeremy. It's just been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Trium Connects, a podcast for the Trium community. I'm Matt Mulford, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of Trium Connects. Until then, I wish you all the very best.